Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, it's noted author and commentator Oz Guinness, who provides some analysis about ideological tension that is evident in America today and how the principles of liberty that are found in the Constitution are being challenged. Then some observations from former ABC News science correspondent Michael Gillen, who shares insight about different scientific areas in which there are significant concerns. Plus, more coverage from the recent GMA Dev Awards in Nashville, including Artist of the Year Zach Williams and others visiting the press room at the recent presentation event. And he is a businessman who built a successful architecture company and has taken the resources with which God has blessed him to do ministry work. His name is Raymond Harris, and he spoke with me recently about the application of biblical principles to our work. Also coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's focus on the family's Glenn Stanton, who addresses how people who stand on biblical truth are too often dismissed and labeled as participants in bigotry. Finally, author Jamie Amarine has experienced frustration in trying to be the perfect parent. She offers insight into the importance of trusting the Lord through the parenting journey. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Oz Guinness is a noted social commentator and author who provides analysis from a Christian worldview perspective. He's written a book entitled Last Call for Liberty, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat, in which he examines cultural trends and ideologies in America and threats to freedom. From a recent conversation, this is Oz Guinness. Well, Bob, I'm not an alarmist, and I always come out as a Christian with hope. But I think we have to say, what is the present crisis? There's no doubt that America is in a crisis. It's described as the deepest divisions in the country since just before the Civil War. Now, many people say it's just another episode of left against right, or maybe it's the coastals against the heartlanders, or the new category is it's the populists and nationalists against the globalists. And I don't think any of those get down to the real problem. As I see it, the problem is you've got two views of the American Republic and of freedom. One view goes back to 1776 and the American Revolution, which was largely, sadly not completely, but largely biblical. And the other view, in many cases unwittingly, goes back to 1789, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, and its more recent heirs. And so you can call that side the secular progressives or the cultural Marxists or various things like that. But the liberal left is actually pressing an agenda, whether it's multiculturalism, political correctness, the sexual revolution, things like this, or incidents like the kneeling controversy or things you saw at the Kavanaugh hearing. They go back to the French Revolution. In other words, America is at a Rubicon moment. Will she go back and restore the founding vision of 1776? Or will she go forward to this other vision, which will be a disaster for America and for American freedom? That's the argument in this book. So talk about this tension, or elaborate just a bit more on the tension that you're seeing between, well, as we might say, the Constitution and, well, (laughs) something else. Well, not just, well, something else. It's very specific. In other words, it's not just chaos. They have a very specific idea in mind. The big difference between just before the Civil War is that Abraham Lincoln 
knew how to address the evil of slavery, which, of course, was in the Constitution. So he prized the Declaration as did Martin Luther King. But the Constitution had the so-called three-fifths laws, which were an evil. Let's be clear about that. Mm -hmm. They were an evil and a hypocrisy. But Lincoln addressed the evils in the light of what he called the better angels of the American experiment. Now, the trouble is nobody's doing that today. Nobody's even analyzing the crisis in its depth. But when you have, say, the president, he talks about make America great again, he doesn't ask what made it great in the first place. It wasn't the military. It wasn't the economy. Those things are important today. It was actually ideas and beliefs and ideals. And unless there's a restoration of those, then someone who understands history, as Lincoln did, will be in trouble. But make no mistake, you can trace these ideas. It takes a cultural Marxism. Marx predicted a revolution in the streets through the proletariat. Never happened. Gramsci, a Marxist sitting in jail in the 1920s, saw that Marx was wrong, and he called for what he called cultural hegemony, domination through the elites, the universities and colleges, the press and the media, and the world of entertainment. Win those worlds of ideas, and you win the culture. And whether you call it cultural Marxism or secular progressivism or whatever, that's what's now triumphant in those elite institutions. And 50 years ago this year, Bob, Rudy Deutschke, many people are too young to remember that name, the leader of the Red Brigade, he called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, you can't win frontally through Congress. You've got to win the institutions I mentioned. And 50 years later, clearly, they succeeded. So the culture war is rooted in those profound differences. And Christians better wake up because many Christians have not addressed the depth of the crisis, nor realized how profoundly we've got to demonstrate an answer to it. Oz Guinness here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website ozguinness.com. Next up, it's former ABC News science correspondent Michael Gillen. He's written a book called The End of Life as We Know It, Ominous news from the frontiers of science. From a recent conversation, this is Michael Gillen now. I didn't write the book to scare people. I know it's a scary title, The End of Life as We Know It. Um, But it really is the most accurate way to describe uh, what's in the book. I wrote the book in order to wake people up to what's going on, Bob. And uh, it's divided up into four sections. You've got the World Wide Web. I talk about the artificial intelligence slash robots. Then I have a whole section on uh, surveillance technology and privacy, and then a final section on genetic engineering. So those are the four big areas that are changing uh, uh, life as we know it. Not It's not the end of life, but it certainly is the end of life as we know it. And something that informs your view of these different scientific developments is your Christian faith. And I thought it would be good here at the front end of our discussion to really have you review how the the lens of the scriptures, if you will, helps you to to recognize some of these dangers with respect to scientific discoveries. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I take my faith extremely seriously. I, I, I'm not one of those guys who just goes to church on Sunday and then, you know, leaves it all behind. It's uh, something that I live with every second of every day. Um, and when I was writing this book, in fact, it was, it was the publisher's idea. 
And uh, when I thought about it, I, it was a kind of a, a no-brainer for me to say yes, uh, because there are so many extraordinary things that are going on. A lot of positive stuff. This is not all gloom and doom, so I want your uh, listeners to understand that. Um, but there are some unsettling things, and you're right. I um, want to make it clear, though, to your listeners that uh, even though I am a Christian, uh, I am a theoretical physicist also, um, and the uh, the book itself, the main part of the book, the four sections that I just described, are just very factual. In fact, I have more than a thousand footnotes in case people want to follow through and read more about these various subjects. Uh, so it's just, you know, the, you remember the old Dragnet TV series? Just the facts, man. <laughs> so, you know, those four sections are, are just, I just want to present the reader uh, with what's going on in labs around the world. Again, not to scare them, Bob, not to scare them, but to inform them so that they can then better protect themselves, better protect their loved ones. And we can get into that in a little while uh, and, and better help direct our country and, and the world towards a, a great future and not a grim one. Um, I allow myself, though, in the final chapter of the book, I have a kind of an epilogue, and it's a chapter where I you know, reflect on what's going on, both as a theoretical physicist and a Christian. And uh, here, here, here it is in a nutshell. Um, <clears throat> all these innovations that the book describes um, are the fruits of human intelligence. But you and I both know, Bob, that we are more than just uh, logical creatures. We are also spiritual beings. And so what, what I'm urging readers, and in this case, your listeners, to consider once they inform themselves by reading the book is then to um, call upon the fruits of the human spirit uh, so that when, the, when human intelligence says, hey, we can do this, we can, we can, uh, we can do a full head transplant, or we, we can create a, a three-parent baby, or you know, on and on and on, the part that has to do with ethics and morality, our religious faiths and so forth, that part of you should say, okay, we can do it, but should we? Yeah. And, and that's, that is the whole point of the book is, but you can't ask those questions, Bob, until you have informed yourself about what's going on. Otherwise, you're, you're living in a vacuum. And so as a believer, as a Christian, I consider it my obligation to stay well-informed. So that then I can make good decisions based on my uh, my Bible-based life, because ultimately I find uh, many many answers out in nature, and the study of nature, the study of God's creation reveals a great deal about God to me. But then I also refer to the Bible uh, for the answers to the really tricky questions, like the ones raised by this book. So that that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. The way I approached it as an author of this book, Michael Gillen here on the intersection. Learn more through the website, Michael Gillen, that's G-U-I-L-L-E-N dot com. Coverage of the 49th annual GMA Dove Awards continuing now. The awards were presented recently in Nashville at Lipscomb University, honoring excellence in Christian music. More coverage now of the GMA Dove Awards from the press room with three more winners from the night. The winner of Southern Gospel Recorded Song of the Year, Jason Crabb. Traditional Gospel Recorded Song of the Year winner, Marvin Sapp and Artist of the Year, Zach Williams. My family said this is the one of the first records that actually sounds like you sound live. And so, because I, I, I get people that come up and say, hey, well, you know, I, I like your records, but I like, I like what you do live better. And so that, that excited me. Um, but this has been a fun year. 
Yeah, this latest project, I love this because I got to write with Jordan Reynolds and Dave Barnes and, and just a bunch. I shouldn't even started uh, naming names because, um, you know, uh, I'll get in trouble. Jimmy Yeary and Michael Farron and, and Tony Wood and, and just a bunch. And I love the songwriting process. I wrote about uh, probably about 60% uh, of this record uh, as well in with, with this record, I really wanted to uh, tackle some issues that we are dealing with in, in, in this day. Um, I think uh, I'm very, very thankful what God is doing. Um, but anyways, thank you. Thank you so very much. The backstory of the song, Close, was I was in a little town in right outside of Valdosta, Georgia, and uh, was there for a revival, to be honest with you. And while I was there, a young man sang this song and when he sang the song I told him immediately as soon as he got through singing it before I preached I told him that I was going to record the song and uh, I took it I recorded it uh, I made some changes because lyrically I, I needed to make sure it was more Marvin Sapp than it was him and um, I mean it's amazing uh, it was the album dropped came out number one on Billboard the song has done extremely well and I mean the proof is in the pudding we won the dove tonight how have I been able to balance being a pastor, two churches, a singer, a father, all of that kind of stuff? You don't balance it. You prioritize. Um, that's the only way that you can be successful in it. Uh, before I'm anything, I'm a father. I have three wonderful children. For those of you who may not know, I'm a widower. My wife passed away eight years ago, so I had to raise my children for the last eight years by myself. And, uh, you know, they're all doing exceptionally well. They're all in college. My son's about to graduate from Howard University in December. My daughters are both, uh, one's a senior at Alabama A&M, the other one is a sophomore at Alabama A&M, and both of them are on the dean's list. Uh, so, um, you know, the first responsibility is, is being a dad. After being a dad, then it's being a pastor of the churches that I pastor, and then after that, it's being a musician, recording artist, and all the other entrepreneurial things that I do outside of that. So I think anything you try to balance, you can fall off. If you try to juggle, you can drop. But if you prioritize, and put things in the proper order, you know, God will give you the grace to be able to deal with them at that particular point, at that particular time. It's hard to explain, honestly. Um, and the videos that are on YouTube and some of the things that we've posted about it kind of gave you a glimpse of what it was like to be there that day. But I think until you go in and actually experience that and, you know, shake hands and hug necks to some of these guys, but I, I just, I've been doing prison ministry now for close to five years. And I can remember the first time I walked into a room full of women and men that when you, when you walk into a place and you just see people that have completely lost hope in everything, but they choose to find hope in Jesus Christ. And it, it's a freedom behind bars that you can't get from drugs, alcohol, from any kind of crime that they've ever committed. I mean, um, it's hard to explain, but it's a, it's a very freeing experience just being in there and seeing these guys worship Jesus. I'd left to go on this tour with kind of this idea that I could be losing my wife and losing my kids. She had kind of came to me and said, you know, I don't think I can continue to support what you're doing anymore. You need to make some changes in your life. I'm not going to stick around. And I just kind of had this moment with God before I left for that tour where I was like, God, I know you're real. Like, I've grown up with the knowledge of you my whole life, and I believe in you, but I, I need you to show up and prove it. And a week into that tour, we were driving across Spain, and I heard their song on a radio station out of nowhere. And... uh I was just like taken back and it was like God said, you know, I see you differently than you see yourself. And it was like all those years 
of my parents' prayers, of the late-night talks that we had. And it clicked in that moment. And I was like, here, I'm the one that's made it hard. Like, God gave his life for me, you know. And, uh, you know, it, there was freedom in knowing that I didn't have to be perfect and have it all together. And so that kind of began my season of growing and change. Sharing about recording an album in a prison and the impact Big Daddy Weave had on his life. That was Zach Williams, preceded by Marvin Sapp and Jason Crabb. To see a complete list of winners, you can go to DoubleWards.com. Winning the Double Award for Inspirational Film of the Year was I Can Only Imagine. The directors were John and Andy Irwin, the Irwin Brothers. I had the chance to talk with board chairman for Irwin Brothers Entertainment, Raymond Harris, recently. He is founder and chairman of a large national architectural firm, co-founder of the Christian Economic Forum, and founding partner of the Global Cities Movement Day efforts in New York City. He's written a book called Business by Design, Applying God's Wisdom for True Success. Here now is Raymond Harris. When I was a young man, I I looked in bookstores um, uh, to find books that would teach me God's principles and how to operate a business. And I didn't find many. I, I saw many books that were maybe about management or leadership or finances. But how do you really understand business from the way God designed it? And I could not find uh, many books like that. In fact, I didn't find any. And so I became concerned about that. So as I studied the scriptures to find out how to how to operate a business properly, I began to notice that there were certain principles that Jesus taught. And so I decided to say, if I examined all the parables in the Gospels that Jesus taught, could those apply to business and for people in the everyday work world? And what I discovered is his principles are very clear and that they apply to everyone. They apply to ministry. It applies to not-for-profits. If you're uh, an employee, they apply to you. It's not just a business owner or a business leader. These principles apply to everyone. And so I wanted to encapsulate as many of those principles as I could, as I understood them, and as I could actually apply them, then I started to write them down. And the Lord seemed to nudge me to say, write these things down and uh, see what will happen. And so that's that's why I wrote the book, is just a nudging from the Holy Spirit to, to write the things that I had begin, that I had begun to learn uh, as I was seeking wisdom in how to run a company uh, that God would uh, be glorified to. Well, as you address the relevancy of these principles of Jesus, and of course he gives us such great teachings that we can apply into so many different areas of our lives, there's so many of them. I wanted to ask you to maybe take one or two of the the principles that that really you operated in that that would be very very relevant in the area of business. The the foundation uh, theme I've I discovered, and I only discovered this a couple of years ago, uh, which is amazing. It's so clear to me. But the foundation of all business principles, I believe is the foundation of doing what's best for someone else, and that is obviously the golden rule. It's really the rule of love. Do for others, uh, love others as you love yourself. I don't see that taught very often in the business world or in, in our employment environments, but all these principles that I discovered uh, fit on top of that foundation of love, and love is expressed through how you handle people, uh, how you deal with them, your generosity, for example. I think one of the greatest principles in business is being generous with people, giving them more service than what they pay for, 
uh, I love the, uh, the the baker's dozen idea where the baker would give 13 donuts instead of 12. Uh, I tried to apply that with my own employees by giving them bonuses and encourage them, give them time off, uh, be very generous with them. I also looked at business from the standpoint of how would I want to be treated? If I were negotiating a contract with someone to do service, what would they want out of the deal? And so I would begin to negotiate from the other side of the table what was best for them because in reality it would eventually be what's best for me. But that's an inverse uh, reality to the way we operate in business. Uh, another principle that I found that was astonishing was the idea of forgiveness, and we don't practice that very often in business at all. And I realized that bi- that in business, uh, forgiveness is a daily uh, task of all businessmen because there's there's things we, ha- we, we run into, and as the Lord's Prayer would tell us, to ask for daily forgiveness as we ask for that forgiveness, we should forgive others. And that's actually a business principle. And as I began to apply that, I began to love my employees better. I, I learned to love my clients when they would be hard on me. I would learn to, to forgive them and get right back into the battle and uh, take good care of them. So those were a couple that, that, that were kind of aha moments for me that I said, oh, my goodness, hmm. this actually applies to business. Raymond Harris here at The Intersection. Learn more through the website businessbydesignbook.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info, or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. And you can also find the Intersection podcast through the Faith Radio app. You can learn about downloading the app for your smartphone or tablet by going to faithradio.org. And when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. And there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Glenn Stanton is Director of Global Family Formation Studies for Focus on the Family. Recently, he discussed with me an anti-bigotry campaign in Scotland and shared how Christians who stand on God's word find themselves being labeled as bigoted or intolerant. Here now from that conversation is Glenn Stanton. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, Scotland, you know, sort of as a nation is doing this um, this campaign. And, you know, we see this sort of stuff on college campuses here and here and there. But for a nation to undertake this across the nation is pretty remarkable. And basically it's this is um, – and the kind of silliness is, I mean, an anti-bigotry campaign, okay, like – Tell me who the pro-bigotry people are, um, you know, and especially Christians. Um, you know, show of hands, how many people um, want to be and are bigots against, um, you know, people who are different than you? What this is about is not so much bigotry or meanness 
or ugliness or hatred. It really is an issue of disagreement that if you simply disagree with the gay agenda, then you are bigoted. It doesn't matter how nice, how kind, how thoughtful, um, how you know dialoguing you are in terms of let's just discuss this. If you take a position of opposition, then you are bigoted. So basically what this is, and we need to understand this, that whenever the charge of bigotry is thrown around, you need to replace that in your mind with disagreement. You know, That's basically what they're talking about is for them, disagreement is bigotry. It's prejudice. It's ugliness. It's hatefulness. And Glenn, you and I probably, we could have a conversation and talk about a variety of issues. And at, at some point, I know that we would agree with a lot, but there's probably going to be a point of discussion where you and I will disagree. I would say that when you have a conversation with any human being, there is going to be disagreement. And something I've said on the air is that disagreement doesn't have to be divisive. And we're living in an age that any sort of disagreement, it seems like, in some realms, especially the realm of social media, it's interpreted, it is exaggerated, and it becomes polarizing to the extent where people have lost the ability in a a lot of circumstances to disagree in an agreeable manner. Well, Bob, and that's exactly it. And I love that phrase, is to disagree but not be disagreeable. We could disagree passionately, you know, and we do that around the Thanksgiving table with our family, you know. But this this is the thing, and you pointed it out so well, is folks, think about any other issue in society where disagreement means hatred or bigotry. Think about even the passionate issues like abortion. Nobody who is pro-abortion says, well, why do you hate me and why do you hate women if you can't support abortion? Um, you know, it's like I think you're wrong. Um, I wish you saw it like I did, and I wish you'd change your mind. But no, it's not that you hate anybody, and this is the only issue where personal acceptance and graciousness is predicated not so much on how we treat people but you – needing to agree with me. I mean, think about it. That is what fascism is. You don't have free will. You can't make up your mind. You must agree with me. And that's exactly what this whole agenda is about. And it's anti-democratic. It's anti-reasonable. Um, and it's it's really, in a way, anti-individual, because let's just let people you know, be who they are. That's what I'll usually throw back to people like this is why can't I just let you be who you want to be and you let me be who I want to be, you know? And it's interesting because when you say that, I mean, that's this basic liberal philosophy and they're like, huh, yeah, okay, that, yeah, what's wrong with that? Um, And that's what makes this all so silly. Glenn Stanton here on The Intersection. The Focus on the Family website is focusonthefamily.com, or to learn more, you can Google Focus Findings. Jamie Amarine is author of the book Sacred Ground, Sticky Floors, How Less Than Perfect Parents Can Raise Kind of Great Kids. In our recent conversation, she talked about her own parenting journey, including struggles she faced and how she discovered God's faithfulness. Here now is Jamie Amarine. My son, Luke, um, is our middle um 
So we have Maggie, John, and Luke, and then Sophia are our biological children, and then Sam and Charlie are the youngest. Luke, um, who a large part of Sacred Ground Sticky Floors is about because he was really struggling. And um, he did write the afterword to the book, which is just absolutely one of my most favorite things in the world. Um, but he was really struggling during this time um, when I was falling into the message of grace and I was writing these books. He was just a red hot mess <laughs> and um, he was in trouble and, and we were just at a loss and I was so devastated. And our younger daughter is a genius and she plays the piano by ear and she's just, it's almost weird. Um, nobody else in our family has these abilities that Sophie has. And um, I knew that through the great finance stuff that I was being harshly criticized for Luke's problems. Well, you know, they should have done this or they should have done this. And then what's wrong with that kid and what's wrong with those parents. And then we go to Sophie's piano recital and everybody walks up and goes, Oh my gosh, you must be so proud. And I just remember thinking, well, what am I? Am I a good mom or a bad mom? I really didn't have anything to do with the way Sophie turned out. She came like that. And it's odd to us. None of us can do algebra and she wins awards doing algebra, you know? So, and I was this, I was her mom. She and Luke are close in age. I was there. I was available. I, I did all the things. I, and I fixed them smoothies and organic spinach and I read to them and, you know, I, I did all of these things. So what defined me as a good mom or a bad mom? And then to that end, you know, I think also sometimes when our kids go through hard times, we think, well, God's trying to show us something or teach us some harsh lesson or something like that. Well, I mean, when my kids messed up, did my character change? Now, yes, I learned things from it. And when Sophie does well, you know, I'm, I am happy that she has that ability. Am I proud? I mean, I'm proud for, for her. I think it's a little bit different now because I think, you know, she, she was blessed with these gifts. She has her own problems too, but do they define me? And to that end, do I define God? And, hmm. um, you know, I think he gave us this vision of parent, of, or, you know, this, this life as parent and child and these relationships as a reflection of how he loves, but we have no idea how much bigger and how much broader and how much more beautiful and giving it is. And two, I, I say this <clears throat> quite a bit, but, you know, um, we had a bad morning this morning. The two younger boys were just out of their minds, not wanting to go to school. And it was just a mess and screaming and hollering and yelling and not me so much as they, they got in a fight and stuff. And um, I was fixing them breakfast and they sat down and I fed them breakfast. And not once did they have to say to me, are we still your sons? They're my sons. And I think um, a lot of women that I speak to, I know for me, this was the thing is I was quest I constantly questioned my standing as daughter. I said yes to Jesus. And when I said yes to Jesus, I am fully saved. I'm his. And, you know, I, I want to be better, and I, I have things that he convicts me of, but he doesn't condemn. And I cannot lose that. Nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus. And um, that is a very freeing place to be in parenting. I believe that it's this place where you go, you know what, they are going to mess up, and it is going to hurt, and it is going to be hard. And it's, but I'm, I'm one on, I'm, I still have this one-on-one -on -one with God that cannot change based on my circumstances or the people around me because he loves me. And, um, I have another thing that I get a lot of emails about that. And I laugh now, but I, I really do think that it was my motive and it's from people that say, how do you keep your kids from sinning? Well, I mean, if you could do that, they wouldn't need Jesus. So 
um, we have to kind of, mm. you know, wrap our minds around the fact that they are sin. They, they, they have that nature, you know, but it's in that journey and it's, it's a, a thermostat of sorts. I can sit down with my kids like I never could before. And we've always had a good relationship, but I can sit down with them and they know that they can talk to me because they know that nothing can separate me from them. And they know that that comes from my love of Jesus. And that has to become their own. Jamie Amarine here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website, sacredgroundstickyfloors.com. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to The Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection Podcast can also be found through the Faith Radio app, Learn more about downloading the app for your smartphone or tablet when you go to faithradio.org. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, you can get connected to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.